Well, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, and I'm in the Cream Teas Tea Room in Cardiff with my friend Lena Densick, who has just corrected my pronunciation of her last name, which I thought was Densick. Yeah, well, say Densick, yeah. Densick. Yeah. What's the etymology of Densick? It, well, it's, it comes from um, Slovakian, actually, uh, uh-huh. originally, but um, it was changed during um, during the war. My, my father's Jewish and he came from my grandparents, and it was changed from Deutsch to Densick uh, during the war okay. to, um, to try and hide, because Deutsch is a very Jewish right. surname. Right, right, right. right so right. it was changed to Densick, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, he actually didn't stay there. I mean, you grew up... Between sort of Denmark, Sweden, England, is that That's right? right. Yes. That right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I um. So, they, my grandparents fled to Sweden. So my father was born in Sweden, raised right. in Sweden. Met my mum, who's also Swedish, and then they moved to Denmark. So I was born and raised in Denmark, but I have a Swedish passport. Right. And then moved to uh, London when I was fourteen. Right. I went to school there. Right. Yeah. With my family. Right. 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 And now here you are, a professor in Cardiff. And tell us about some of the research you're up to right now. Like what's turning you on? What's interesting you know? Yeah, so at the moment I'm doing some research for a book that I'm writing together with somebody else, who's at Brunel, actually, Peter Wilkin. Um, and we're doing some research around the transformation or changing nature of labor movements, um, looking particularly at the role of new and social media in that. So trying to kind of get a sense of how worker resistance is trying to take advantage of these new technologies and challenging corporate power. Um, so I have just been to New York, for example, in December to um, look at the fast food workers' protests there um, and exploring a little bit whether there was a role of, of social media, which was how um, it was talked about a lot, um, or whether or how that role was sort of actually in place, really, so that's the things that... And are you finding patterns in terms of different parts of the world or different industries or different genders or ages or races within industries? Um, well, so we're focusing sort of on, on low-wage workers, so we've also looked at um, cleaners campaign in the, in the UK, um, cleaners for justice um, campaign, and I'm going to also look at domestic workers in Southeast Asia, um, where there's also supposedly in places like Singapore and Hong Kong, um, new media technologies have been significant in mobilizing or getting organizing um, domestic workers there. Um, so, but I think it is very different from case to case. I think in some instances, I suppose what we're finding is that social media gets used um, differently by different groups. So some of it is about engaging in counter-PR against corporations. Counter-PR. In a way, so... um, Counter-public relations. Exactly. So, for example, I spoke to some people from the Starbucks Workers Union, also in the US, and that's the sort of tactic that they used a little bit of initially because um, it's you can do that with a company like Starbucks who rely so much... Yeah, with any big old corporation. They're, it's hard and to do with a little, exactly. little tea room like this. You <laughs> yeah. can't really do it, can That's, you? It would be different. Yes. Well, you could, but um, uh, what's interesting about it is, well, they could use this, the idea that Starbucks sells itself on being a, a good employer and a nice employer um, by actually highlighting that um, not only sort of the conditions that baristas were working in, but also that a good employer would have a union in place, you might argue around that point. And they have a funny word for their baristas, don't they? 
aren't they? They're not called executives. All right. But there's some, at least in the United States, they use our consultants or something. Like that. Right. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Just trying to get them to feel more empowered. I yes. Guess. Yeah. Right. So, but with the, the case of the fast food workers, for example, what we found was that social media hasn't played a particularly significant role at all. The way that it's been used has been in terms of organizing and mobilizing. But the way that it's been used primarily is to try and, and give the impression that it's a sort of worker-led um, grassroots movement more than perhaps it actually is. It's very union-led, in fact. Very union-led. It's yeah. a traditional organizing model exactly. rather than something that's from below. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of funded and organized by um, SEIU, the Services Employees International Union, um, who have worked with community groups to, to organize um, yeah. fast food workers, but social media there has been used as a tool to there make the union seem less present. This SEIU is notorious ah. in the United States and in the labor movement there in particular for talking the good talk about grassroots organizing, but in fact accreting more and more power to its bureaucracy. It brings out the inner anarcho-syndicalist or trot looks. <laughs> Unbidden yes. in all of us, yes. just waiting for the right stimuli to leap out and identify Andy. What's his name? Is wicked. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's 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 it. <laughs> <laughs> agree with that. Yeah. Now, can I ask you a definitional question, which perhaps I should have started yeah. with? Social media. Mm. What are the anti-social media? The anti-social yeah, what media. Are, what are anti-social or non-social media? Right, so in, um, I guess as opposed to sort of mainstream media, I guess so the idea that uh, it's from one way to many, to many. That, and the so idea, Facebook's not a mainstream communications company? Well, no, absolutely quite. So it's, I suppose more we should emphasize on the, on the direction of communication. So, the direction of communication. Yeah. I suppose the idea of the social, this is how some people define it, is that it's about being connected in a way that you haven't been able to do with traditional media. And that's what makes social media different. But then you are identifying social with connective or connectivity, which may not be what enough, perhaps. It's interesting because it takes us back to the old Brechtian fantasies of what radio should be. Mm. When radio yeah, was yeah. to be two-way and there'd be choral responses by workers that could also inflect the drama that was being enacted in the studio. Right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. No, I don't, th I mean, I think others... That's been said more and more that this idea of social media isn't new with this new technology. We've, we've had ideas around this before, especially with radio, as you say. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's something that you see being a bit spotty. Mm. It's quite interesting, you know, there are attempts to connect Mexican uh, employees of Foxconn with Indian employees of Foxconn, the Chinese employees of Foxconn, okay. through grassroots social movements, particularly people dealing with sexual oppression in the workplace, gender oppression in the workplace, okay. yeah. and also people across maquiladoras as they're assembling television yeah. sets. And, and, and Foxconn, which means, which they say, sorry, Foxconn? Foxconn is, uh, has a million employees, okay. it's a Taiwanese-based company, All right. and it manufactures um, all iPads, all right, yeah. uh, iPhones, and so on. And it became notorious because of a number of worker suicides in China yes, a few so years ago. Yeah. And it's facing mass organizing through social media across different countries. Okay. It has employees in every largely populated third world country, basically. 
And it's just beginning to open up, interestingly enough, manufacturing centers in the United States because you know manufacturing is returning yes. to places like the United States big time. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And also Latin America, mm. away from China. Anyway, whatever. That's incredibly interesting. And so, how do you find the issue of you know low wage people having access to the technology that's relevant and also knowledge about how to use the technology? Yeah, I think that probably is an issue. I think I'll discover more around that for some with the domestic workers movement um, yes. in Southeast Asia, where I think that might have been more of an issue, but in fact, the argument that I have been introduced to so far is that actually, because domestic workers have been incredibly difficult to get in touch with because everybody works in the house, so it's very right, difficult right. to actually organize um, and, and reach people. And what so social media has overcome, supposedly, some of these barriers because actually, surprisingly, the amount of people are connected and do have the skills. Oh, well, here's a question about that group. Mm. Are a lot of the migrant workers? Yeah. I know in Hong Kong there are a lot of Filipina lesbians yeah. who go there to escape their families, yes. basically. Yeah. to work as domestic employees. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I'll be looking at. I mean, I haven't sort of gone into depth in this case yet, but it's looking at also the connection between um, workers' organizations in the Philippines then and then in Singapore and Hong Kong around domestic workers to see um, what the sort of solidarity and, and cooperation is there. Yeah. yeah. And then also at a, at a global level, this is another aspect that's interesting of it, because of it that's um, sort of this idea of global union federations and yeah. things like that, which was seen as being a way to try and, I guess, overcome some of the domestic barriers to union organization. But it hasn't, well, what people have told me anyway is that it hasn't been that effective in doing that. It gets used quite sort of strategically in the ILO that does. But for the domestic workers, they did create an international um, domestic workers network, which seems to have been quite successful in in okay. organizing and getting um, domestic workers rec recognized as workers, which is one of the main First things. First yeah. You just mentioned the ILO, and that's going to be my next question. This is the International Labour Organization, yes. folks, which is one of the few remaining League of Nations entities. League of Nations that was created after the First World War as the peacemaking organization that would bring world government uh, to us and save us from the horrors of the Great War being reenacted. Oh, oh, still waiting for that one. The ILO started being still going, and I'm wondering what its attitude is to all of this, and whether it's trying to enable workers, or how you see it. Well, they're very involved in the domestic workers thing, for example. So, yeah, um, and have worked with, with this International Domestic Workers Network but how effective it has been and what precisely they do and, and how they go about it. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of, of questions around Still to be asked. And yeah. this is all stuff that you're going to find out in yes. the next year or so. Yeah. So a lot of this is on-the-ground research. Yeah. How does one, without wishing to give away trade secrets, how does one prepare for that? How do you get ready before going to New York and what do you do when you're there, to mm. take an example from your recent excursion? Right, so I before I went, I... Um, so I've been involved with um, with different workers' organisations here in the UK, and I had so I got some contacts through that uh, in New York as well, um, and then just 
because they've been very public, the fast food workers especially have been very sort of, um, got a lot of media coverage and things like that, identifying people, going through the media, identifying who are the spokespeople, etc., to get in touch with. Um, so I, I did that before to try and set up some interviews before, but actually I had limited before I actually went there. Um, and I, I, hope, I was hoping that it would sort of snowball once I got out there, which it, which it did. And I also was very lucky because I, I managed to time my stay there at the same time as a very big action, the December 5th uh, strikes, which was a strike across 100 cities in the US for fast food workers, which is the biggest action of, of that sector in United States history. So it was a good coincidence. So I managed to speak to a lot of fast food workers there at the protest as well as organizers um, and got to know about who to speak with also the more critical voices within that campaign. So, and then I, I sort of sit down and interview them a bit like, like this, I guess. And when you say the more critical voices, what are they saying? Well, so, for example, they're saying that it's the idea that this campaign has been worker-led and worker-instigated hasn't actually been the case. What's happened is that SEIU funded, um, in the case of New York, um, New York Communities for Change, NYCC, which is a community group to go out and initially petition uh, people in the community and then start asking questions about wages and whether they would like higher wages to pay for housing etc and then going to the workplaces finding out that people with fast food workers and going to workplaces and, and organizing fast food workers that way um, and then kind of sort of mobilizing them for one day strikes which were very media focused which has been another criticism of it that rather than being a sort of long-term sustainable movement, what they've sort of built is more a media campaign, which has been very successful, mind you, because Obama has agreed to increase the minimum wage now, and a lot of credit goes to this campaign for pushing that issue. But it's certain, in terms of the nature of the movement, it's, it's quite different from how it's been uh, portrayed. So, yeah. And those critical voices, how do they relate demographically to the more mainstream union voices? I'm thinking about race, gender, age, position, labour market. Yeah, I mean, interesting, because a lot of the, um, well, there is definitely, a lot of the fast food workers are um, from different ethnic minorities, um, and then you have the organisers who tend to be, well, from what I saw anyway, a sort of young white uh, folks. But you did have some, as well, some, some black organizers that I spoke to anyway who went out. But of course, they're from a, a different background than the fast food workers, definitely. They've gone to college. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in terms of the union officials, uh, I think a lot of them, they're not so different. Actually, a lot of the people who were working for the community groups were also kind of union officials who's doing that work. So that distinction isn't so great as well as I could say. Did you come away with it feeling optimistic? I mean, I assume there's a position, a tendency of formation that animates your work, which is that this is a good thing, that yeah. organizing is de principe a good thing in order to get greater workers' rights, and that use of the social media is de principe a good thing because it will be more involving, more participatory, mm. more democratic. Yes, except I, I came out with it thinking that um, there's also a problem because 
governments are increasingly undermining workers' rights and conditions and um, by law and labor law in the U.S., for example, I was told repeatedly doesn't particularly favor any workers, but favors corporations, if anything. Um, so the fact that workers have to rely on social media to overcome or to be protected is a problem because it's not a democratic or a particularly secure um, form of, of resisting corporate power. Yeah. My other issue with it was that, and this is one of the things that I'd like to explore more, this relationship between social media and protest, um, this idea that social media is kind of now strategically used to sort of present a picture of authenticity around a protest mm. movement almost, to give it credibility. So we're very keen to sort of say a protest has been social media driven because then we feel it's somehow more authentic. And actually these social media platforms, they're largely commercial, um, are actually hugely problematic to be using for protests and activism. So it's it's um, this myth around social media and protests is quite problematic. Right? Okay. Yeah. All right. We've been talking about the present and the future of your research. Let's yeah. go back, 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 back okay. as I say in baseball commentary. <laughs> yes. You go to high school here in the UK. Yeah. Then you go to college. Uh, yeah. Where did you go to college? I went to Lancaster University for my undergraduate. And then Specializing? Yeah, I did politics and international relations. Politics. And then you went to Warwick. Warwick for my, yes, yes. for my MA in international relations um, yeah. as well. Then I took four years out. Well, out, I say. I worked in television after that. So oh. I got a job as a researcher for a TV production company called Brooklapping Productions. They called? Brooklapping Productions. Brooklapping Productions? They, yes. As in water lapping at the edge of a brook. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> but it, but it, or was it two people named Brooke yes, and Laffin? That's Yes, the, that one. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's actually one by Anne and Brian Laffin, who are documentary makers of this kind of um, old school style, big sort of, um, you know, Middle East documentaries, Arab and the Arab world in the West, or Iran in the West. And they do programs like that. I didn't do programs like that, but they do in that company. So I worked there as a researcher and a producer um, eventually. And what did you produce? I produced uh, mainly um, programs, current affairs-y type programs for educational television, so around education issues. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it was slightly strange. My best thing was I did a history documentary for um, the history curriculum on the kinder transport, which I mentioned as well. Um, was this rescue mission in 38-39, so I did a documentary about that to be shown in schools. Wonderful. Yeah, that was, then I left to do a PhD at Goldsmiths. Can you, yes. tell, can you tell listeners a little bit more about the documentary, okay. the particular one? It's a yes. very important topic, and I yes. must admit I haven't seen the film, but no. I shall endeavour to do so. Yes. Um, well, it's a, it was a, a rescue mission um, that took place in uh, 38-39, uh, well, that saved 10,000 children coming from um, from Austria, the Czech Republic, and Germany, uh, Jewish children who were placed on trains to go to the UK and be placed in foster homes or care to, to foster care with families and so forth. And they needed sponsorship from someone in the UK in order to come, but then they would be, be placed um, initially often uh, in foster well, in schools and things like that before being placed with families. And um, for this program, I then talked to some of these um, these children who have come over about that experience and about integrating into the British school system particularly because this was supposed to appeal to British school children, how they interact with people who come from other countries. Um, 
into the classroom. Um, so we, we followed a couple of, um, of these people on their sort of journey around the, the UK and their lives. So we actually went back to Vienna with one of them to meet his, or see his childhood home, which was quite an experience. He hadn't been standing in the hallway, he hadn't been there since he was yeah, there in 38. So yeah, it's quite an extraordinary experience for him to be there. Wow. Mm. Did any of these people get involved with Eric Hobsbawm? Because he'd come from Vienna as a slightly older person, four yeah. or five years earlier. No, I, not that I think of these people. No, not, yeah. I don't think that any of those were. I don't know. Did he come on the Kinder transport? No, no, he was older. Okay. And he came in the mid thirties, I think, but from Vienna. So oh, I was right. just interested in whether oh, I right. think I've got that right. Whether mm. there was any connection. Uh, not with any of the people that we spoke to, anyway. And did people who come over fleeing the pogroms mm. provide particular contact points, or was it just any old, you know, decent Church of England person? In terms of where they were placed yeah. afterwards? Yeah, um, responsible. Yeah. It seems to be quite... Uh, I'm not sure exactly how people were, actually, who was chosen to go, and so forth. It was the parents yeah. who who tried to get contact with people they knew, etc., elsewhere to try and, and sort it out. So it was, um, and I don't think that they particularly knew how it was being organized right. and so forth. And it, right. kind of, it, it stopped after quite quickly, actually. It only went for about a year. So, sure, yeah. sure. There's a mini-series in Australia made by Kennedy Miller, who made the Mad Max films and the Witches of East Coast, called The De Niro Boys. Right. Do you know about this? No. It might be fun for you to watch sometime. Okay. It's a, it is a, a dramatised mini-series about a vast shipping troop, 400 children, who I think were turned away from London and New York and ended up in Sydney. And who became basically the people who reconstructed Australia after the Second World War? Okay. All the intellectuals, the orchestra leaders, and these the psychiatrists, right. the psychoanalysts, you name it. You know, one of those things where you weren't allowed to be just another guy or gal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you, you've, you've blended your international politics, yes. political economy, interests with media. Yes. And then you skedaddle off and do a PhD at Goldsmiths in London. And who did you work with there? Uh, James Curran was my yeah. supervisor there, um, which was fantastic to work with. Really. Um, um, and it was, um, it was looking at, do you want me to explain what yeah, it was about? It was, um, so it was precisely this uh, informed by wanting to, having a background in international relations and politics and having then worked in the media. And one of the issues during my MA that I had been a bit concerned with was this sort of um, global turn in politics and how that was being explained and described. Global turn in politics. Yeah, so the idea that we were moving towards a global space of politics. So it was increasingly, you talked about global governance and global civil society, which is eventually what I explored this concept of global civil society because my issue with it was that it seemed to have very implicit understandings of developments happening in media and that this is what was aiding these transformations and transformations, which I had an issue with how that explains media developments. Um, so I explored sort of journalistic practices or developments in, in news 
to sort of match this with this concept of global civil society, um, um, sort of saying that actually global civil society isn't really supported by these developments in media. And media develops in a far more contradictory way than necessarily one that moves us towards an expanded space of politics. So that was what my, my PhD was about. Did, did it have some empirical... Yeah, so I looked at three different types of news organizations. So I looked at BBC World News as the kind of global news outlet to look at how global issues become come about and get explained and a sort of shockingly unprofessional presentation of BBC Worldwide. Astonishingly Oh right, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I say this I was once a presenter on. Oh really? Yes. Gosh, okay. When was that? Before you were born. All oh, right. 1999. Oh, no, not quite. <laughs> I was born, but okay, yes. Yes, wow. No, but shockingly poor. Anyway, okay, so that was yes, one. Yes, that was one, and then I looked at um, Los Angeles Times as a kind of local or yeah. national newspaper and how they interacted with this kind of global public sphere idea. Um, and also the charm, the, we were discussing the charm of family at dinner yes, last night, yes, former owners. Yes, exactly. Which is partly why I chose that case, so they have knowing, being able to get access to... Because you have a family yeah, connection. Exactly. Um, See, you know, the Jews really do own the media throughout the United well, States, even when the Chandlers are the sort of waspiest family imaginable. And also not, not Jewish. Yeah, exactly. Not yeah. Jewish at all. Yes. And not owning the paper, but nevertheless, yes. we can draw these mad anti-Semitic tentacular maps, oh, exactly. you know, very easily. <laughs> I know. Oh well, I'm afraid to be Yeah. No, it's funny. Whenever I teach a uh, class about Hollywood to Europeans, somebody will say, "Some European yes. will say, don't the Jews run Hollywood? <laughs> it's just fantastic." And I say, "Oh yes, Sony, for example. All right. It's <laughs> <Yes>, well known. <laughs> Jewish cabal. Yes." No, it's a very easy point. So actually, when Sam Zell bought Los Angeles Times, he's a Jewish businessman. There was certainly some talk around, oh, let's look at how sort of certain coverage might change or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, that's very, it's really, really great and inspirational and excitingly innovative thing to contrast the LA Times with right. BBC World News. <laughs> and, and was there a third? Uh, yeah, and, and was, sorry? was there a third? Yeah, yeah. So I looked then finally at so at um, alternative or citizen journalism sites because this is sort of the idea that has, I suppose, fed a lot of um, or developments that have fed a lot of these ideas around a global civil society. Is that the alternative news sites online can um, create some kind of global public space or global public sphere? Um, and um, so I looked at Oh My News International, which was the global version of Oh My News Korea, which is a very successful um, citizen journalism site in South Korea, as well as Ground Report, which is a less-known um, US-based citizen journalism outlet. Both of those were kind of aimed at creating this global space, if you like, yeah. sort of a platform for global news. So I looked at those um, as well. Nice. Mm. And can people read some of this anyway? Yeah, it's, it's out of the book. Uh, called, well, yeah. <laughs> let's promote it. Yeah, right. Not that it needs it, I'm sure. Oh, well, it's not very well read. It's called uh, Media and Global Civil Society. Yeah. Central sounding title, that's what James Curran always told me. So um, that's what that's, it was out, uh, published in 2012 by Palgrave. Indeed it was. I know the book and it is terrific, I should say. So I sort of set that one up a little bit. But 
So how would you relate this to people like, say, John Keane, mm. who I guess is another person mm. well known for writing on this topic, and also coming at it from outside communication? Yes, but actually has argued that, well, certainly in, in the work he did around global civil society, he, um, he did want to grant media quite a a strong role in terms of um, creating some kind of transformation in civil society's ability to not only um, be united globally but also hold rogue states and corporations etc to account that the, he sort of argues at one point that the, the media has done what um, you know maps of the world previously um, are supposed to do is to create a global consciousness of some right, some sense, and some um, idea of, of a global civil society. Yeah, so I think it's, I think some of it, it does make sense that um, that we may have a global consciousness in place, but it's a very, very nascent form, um, and it's, and I think it's, um, I suppose my problem with it is that it's a little bit um, dangerous to start calling things global. Um, when the underpinnings of it are so deeply unequal and, and sort of dependent on a very unequal political economy, so that isn't democratic and isn't global. Um, It'll be plutocratic. And I was going to say, because of your international relations training mm. and inclinations, there's always going to be a scepticism based on the knowledge of centuries of people predicting on a fairly routine basis the coming of global government. Yeah. Right. It's there from the get-go in international relations. It never happens. Yes. No matter whether it's essayed institutionally or through organic networks. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. That would be a limiting factor for you as a scholar in endorsing these yeah, I hopes. Do. Yes. Well. Or no. Yes, I think so. Well, I think that uh, any idea of global government can only ever really reflect a certain power relations. I mean, any global is defined by by mm. certain power relations, and and I think you see that in terms of someone like David Chandler that I quite like has written stuff around the idea of global ideology. And oh, it's really? David Chandler. Yeah, at Westminster. Um, uh -huh. And I like this idea, what he kind of illuminates is the way in which the global often comes to actually represent a lack of connections, a lack of social bonds, um, a lack of accountability and a lack of, of responsibility. So we will call things global when it is sort of, becomes sort of empty because it's so abstract. Um, so for example, the financial crisis is global and that means no one really then takes responsibility for it either. I mean, it can get used in this way, perhaps in the climate change, that by calling it um, or defining it continuously as global, it absorbs um, sort of any strategy or a real sense of power. Mm -hmm. And what about the utopianism of the local? Yeah. How does that play out in your life? Yeah, I mean, the Brown Report, for example, does define in that way uh, the global in terms of a collection of local. So Brown Report is made up of lots of lo local stories, and that's sort of the hyper-local makes up the, the global. Um, I suppose I, I, I'm not entirely sure myself where I stand on the connection between the local and the global in this way, whether the, the local necessarily has to appeal to some something outside of itself. Um, I do think it's, it gets um, 
It's, I think it's, yeah, it is, I'm a little bit kind of in between. We have sort of colleagues who work on either side of this spectrum. We kind of work a lot with global ideas, sort of, um, you know, and Andy Williams that I share an office with, for example, talks a lot about hyperlocal citizen journalism and really values that for the sort of its role in building communities. And I can kind of see be sympathetic to both arguments. And very popular in the United States and in many other countries is George Ritzer's notion of the global. Yeah. His books on globalism yes. sell in the hundreds of thousands. Still, though, because I think that word was used so much sort of like 15 years ago and things. And has it, is he still as popular? Do you think? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it started out, I think it was Ford yeah first used it okay and then it got associated with george as an intellectual movement but i think it's corporate yeah and sony also so to be simultaneously global and local in every space yes is the corporate mantra and then creating new hybrid cultures out of that i suppose is that the idea as well well whilst controlling them centrally right so what i mean perhaps you could just wind up on the book by Defining civil society for us, uh, because it's it's a term that goes back you know, centuries. It's slippery, but it's used by both right and left to mean good people yeah. somehow. Outside of state and outside of market is often kind of how it gets defined. That's certainly how I understood global civil society to have been used in the literature predominantly and gelled together communicatively uh, as well. Um, so that's kind of how I approach it through their definition of it. So what do you do with the Church of England? Mm. So I think that would be part of civil society, but I agree Even though it's the creature of the state. Yes. And same with market. I mean, how do you, this is one of the slippery things, how do you define what is not market in, in today's world? BBC World News takes advertising yes, in many places. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. yeah, it's yeah. an interesting one. These definitions become very slippery, don't they? We've got to have them. Yep. But then massive exceptions jump out the minute we define them tightly. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. We can't get too legislative about this stuff. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was the so-called anti-globalization movements, which seem to be the keenest globalization movements around. What part do they play in all of this? Yeah. Um, well, I think if, if you talk about it in terms of the global justice movement, sort of also more broadly, which still exists more today, I think, I mean, in a way, they're a product. A lot of people would say they're a product of globalization as well as, but a different vision of globalization. That's kind of, I suppose, how they get described. Um, I'm not sure they represent global civil society necessarily in the way that it's understood in a lot of the literature because they're. Um, I think because there are quite a lot of complexities within those movements. I mean, I'm not an expert on those movements, but I, I understand that they increasingly have found, become more locally rooted anyway. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at something like Occupy, for example, which where local space actually comes matter an awful lot. What about other globalizing entities that use the media? I'm thinking of, for example, narco traffickers mm-hmm. who get very involved in the media through the creation of narco literature, narco novelas, etc., etc. Where do do non-state terrorists and global criminals 
and criminal entities fit in the idea of civil society, especially because a lot of them use the media all the time. I, think, I mean, this is, so again, the romanticization we have around civil society doesn't want to include the bad people in this, but of course they are, yeah. I mean, they, they need to be a part of it. So the idea, for example, that we have a kind of global moral order in place and things like that might, is, is quite problematic when you actually start, because it would exclude an awful lot of, of groups that are also part of global civil society. I mean, Keane is, is quite good on it, because he will sort of say that civil society is also defined by some civic, kind of civil notion, which would sort of imply a kind of non-violent attitude and so forth. Would it? Uh-huh. Well, that's interesting because a lot of these groups provide social welfare mm. and extraordinary benefits, right. including health care to the poor and the underprivileged. So their own justice, their own idea of global justice, I guess. Right? Yeah. And localism. Anyway, that's a fascinating one. So the book's out from Palgrave. Yeah. It's a British firm, I guess. Palgrave Macmillan, or was it a US uh, yeah. firm uh, with an office both. here? It's yeah. both. Yeah, Palgrave okay. So that came out in 2012, yeah. and you've done some other research as well. Could you just give us a little... So, well, I, I spent a year in Budapest um, before coming to Cardiff University, so um, 2011 to 2012 I was there. And I did um, some research there that I'm also still working on, expanding on, um, looking at, at the current political culture and, and um, so-called crisis of democracy in Hungary, which happened since um, the election of this Fidesz government in 2010, which has sort of been described as a very authoritarian, increasing authoritarian government. Mm. Sort of, they have won a two-third majority of implemented so record-breaking amount of reforms that have transformed the political system in such a way that people could start talking about an authoritarian state. First one being the media law reforming that, for example, um, so it became under much tighter government control. And um, that has sort of created protests within uh, Hungary and, um, and certain movements. So the one that I had looked at together with a colleague um, there, as well as the Peter Wilkin again that I've, I've worked with before. Um, and then Eva Bogner, who's a sociologist in, in Hungary. We've looked at a movement called One Million for the Freedom of Press in Hungary. One million for the freedom of the press in Hungary. That's right. And they started, they came out of the media reform in 2010, uh, but started as a Facebook group. Um, and it was about sort of getting likes onto, or join, people joining this page, or this page. And then developed um, from that into organizing protests, which were quite successful in that they got actually 80,000 people and so out in the streets of Budapest. Um, but very tellingly about Hungarian political culture has um, had an idea around sort of inspiring civil society in Hungary through providing information about the government that they thought wasn't coming out in the mainstream media, um, framing it around this idea of the lack of freedom of expression in, in Hungary with these new media reforms, um, and then becoming a broader political pro-democracy uh, movement, but hasn't um, that has not materialized, and in fact they've become now part of a, a political coalition that's going to enter into the elections for the next 2014 election, so not civil society as we might mm. talk about. Yeah. What about hypernationalism, anti-Semitism, racism in Hungary, which we read a lot about nowadays? 
Yeah, so, um, and that is, yeah, this far-right uh, movement uh, has been very strong in Hungary, so particularly around anti-Semitism and anti-Roma um, issues, and there is this uh, party called the Jobbik Party, which is... Jobbik. Jobbik. Yeah. Pardon my ignorance. No, no, yeah. that's, that's yeah. the far-right party in Hungary, um, which has now also got elected in 20, in 20 Parliament in 2010, with, and had sort of, at one point, about 20% of the... Vote and um, has has grown from a very militant base into a political party as well, and has also entered from former politics. So it shows a lot about says a lot about civil society in Hungary. It's, it's not it doesn't exist particularly um, in the same way. So actually, having an impact is often seen the only way you can do that is to not join former politics in, in some way. Um, but this Jobbik party has had a huge impact also on the government in pulling it to the right and actually. Um, legitimizing some of these anti-Semitic and anti-Roma racist sort of attitudes. Yeah. Wow. And are there coalitions between Hungarian Roma and Hungarian Jews in the face of this? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I think they're very different. The, the kind of anti-Semitism and anti-Roma is, is very different in nature, um, the racism, because the anti-Semitism is also targeted around um, is linked to the communist past, which was seen as being in Hungary, communism and, and Jews were closely connected, um, Jewish intellectuals, etc. Um, and uh, whereas the Roma sort of occupy more, much poorer positions within society, so it's a different, different attitude. Um, so the anti-Semitism is often gets framed around. Um, Previous roles that Jewish intellectuals and Jews have had in society as well. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Gosh, that's exciting stuff and complicated. Has that any of that been published, or are you still? Uh, so it? it's um, well, we have a, a paper that's going to hopefully come out in. Um, I think it's called the Journal of Central European Politics, um, and about the Mila, the one million freedom of press uh, in Hungary movement. And then it's also turning into a, a book, <laughs> which will come out um, next year, which is going to be called, uh, I think, Hungary's Crisis of Democracy, yeah, which I'm writing together with these other two. Wow, you're just astonishingly productive. Well, it's not out yet, but yeah, I'm busy with it anyway. Yeah, yeah. 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 And one can see a consistency of theme across Hopefully, your yeah. projects, and therefore there's a bit of a binding narrative, thinking about the media, thinking about civil society, thinking about voices from below and the oppressed, but trying to be a little wary of some of the utopian rhetoric that comes with uh, this notion of uh, sovereignty and uh, decency that derives therefrom. Is that Yes, fair? and I think also perhaps critical about sort of the utopianism around what media and media technologies can, can do with dance, sort of understood in context, when media technologies get abstracted from in context, I guess. There's, there's a problem. Yeah. Can I ask you one last question, if I may, about all this, which is, for reasons that I've never fully understood, everybody in this country and the rest of Europe that I've encountered perhaps on about Habermas and the counter-public sphere and the public sphere as the key concept. Why is that? Why are people so excited about this? From a media perspective or generally? Um, 
So for me, I think it provides a way to understand the democratic function of news. Um, in, so in terms of underpinning a public sphere in today's society. So in that way, I suppose it's useful also to then explore the problems or with media in terms of its ability to function as a, as a public sphere um, and therefore counter public spheres as alternative ways of, of um, understanding media. Um, but I, do we have a public sphere kind of fetish for everything that is skin? Perhaps, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm not always so clear why it gets used as much as it does mm. either. It's, a, it's also a very liberal understanding of the role of, of the media in society. It's closely linked to, to sort of a liberal narrative of media developments that media has acted as a watchdog and so forth, spokesperson for the people, etc., rather than as a, a tool for social control. And of course, I guess one of the key things here that relates to that is the difference between places that have been state socialist in the very recent past that haven't really had free presses. Mm. One has to be honest about yes. it. And how their emergence into capitalist democracies has functioned when there wasn't much civil society other yeah. than in there. Yeah. But that is clearly a profound problematic for the whole of Europe, and it also applies to the notion of having a public sphere, just as the emergence from right-wing authoritarian states in Latin America saw people mistrustful of statism and very energised by ideas of civil society. Yes, I think there's a very... Um kind of this idea of speaking uh, truth to power exists very strongly and so, I mean I'm talking about Hungary also as this example of this right it's that um, there is this idea that the state and the political system is, is deeply corrupt um, and dysfunctional and there's a massive mistrust and so especially amongst young people um, and that's the transitional period was actually just elite democracy. It was one elite being replaced by another elite, or actually not even another, quite similar um, elite. So, and that so the transition has never been legitimate. And I think that's always going to be um, a huge problem for how political culture takes form. Oligarchs displace other oligarchs, and sometimes they're actually the same people. Clearly, a difficulty across the whole post-Soviet system. It's, which can be partially understood as an oligarchy changing its mind mm, yeah, in the context of economic crisis. Theory me, that's a slightly demoralizing note. We should finish with something okay. more positive. Can you give us a happy story to go out on? A happy story? Um, no, George Soros gave me a fellowship or something like that. Oh, I wish. Um, <laughs> I can, uh, well, just, I only have fingers crossed around fellowships and grants and things like that, so that's what all I can do for now, is that I have applications and being processed to get money to do things, and so hopefully right. I will get you'll those. Get that money. <laughs> yeah. so it sounds to me whether you get the money or not, and I hope you do, you'll bring these projects to fruition. It's one way or another. One way or another, that's great. Lena, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, Will you come back into the pod, I guess when the Hungary book comes out? Perhaps with your colleagues. Yes, I'd love that. That'd be Absolutely. wonderful. Thank you.